Good afternoon, that's Gary Kavner here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 20th of the 11th. Michael, how have you been since we last talked? I've been very well, Gary, thank you very much, and how are you? Oh, I've been well. So today, Michael, I think there's a couple of issues that came up which are all kind of loosely grouped together. They would be Bernard Durkin and his thoughts on Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses and whether or not they were a uh, book looking for a response. We have the National Party and the decision of some of our friends on the left gauge in, shall we say, Michael, a politics of a more physical sort. Much more praxis than theory. And we have Michael Bloomberg on Boris Johnson Boris Johnson was recently was speaking at an uh, event in Singapore, one of Michael Bloomberg's event uh, events, and Michael Bloomberg had to apologise for the terrible, terrible things that Boris Johnson has said, even though those things were absolutely true. Doesn't stop them being embarrassing. Then sometimes true things are very embarrassing. So I suppose we will start, Michael, on Bernard Durkin. For those who aren't aware, Bernard Durkin is a Finnegale TD. He's been there for a good while. He was in the Dáil on Thursday, and they were making statements on Dublin City safety initiatives yes and bernard gives this long rambling answer and i'm honestly not sure what he was trying to say really at all but in it he starts talking about salman rushdie the famous author who was recently mutilated um when someone tried to to kill him we should take it's unclear what the motivation of the attack was i remember the the new york the New York Times was very clear that we shouldn't jump to any conclusions. It was still murky and unclear why the uh, passionate supporter of the Ayatollah Khamenei uh, in Iran had in fact attacked the Fatwad author. I mean, in the same way, it was very unclear what happened when the Japanese translator of uh, the Satanic Verses was found stabbed to death in his office. Or when I believe it was the Norwegian publisher was shot three times it was pretty clear what was happening when they uh when someone who had translated part of it into um turkish when they burned down his hotel killing i think 35 people it was pretty clear then because apparently that was a mob of hundreds of people okay okay that was clearer then yeah i don't i think maybe it's worthwhile in the context just for the for the for the, the dear listener just to read some of the quote here um from bernard durkin td i remember when Salman Rushdie penned his famous satanic, The Satanic Verses. I think I was the only one who disagreed with him at the time, and I said so. The book has been seen as an expression of freedom of speech, but I saw it as something else. I saw it as something that begged a response. It was threatening people of selected religions. Some people are very sensitive about religion, and we should know about it in this country for God's sake. Those people saw a reason for retaliation because they were sensitive about it, and retaliation happened. When Salman Rushdie penned his famous The Satanic Verses, I think I was the only one who disagreed with him at the time. He disagreed with him about writing the book. I don't really... What does that mean? I was the only one and by the way, Gary, if my memory serves, and I actually remember when Salman Rushdie published this book, there were quite a few people who disagreed with him. I don't think it was only Bernard Durkin. I remember watching news stories all across the world of thousands of people who had made the effort and got out and bought the book in order to be able to burn it on television. In Malaysia, in Indonesia, in India, in Pakistan, across the Near East, the Middle East, North Africa, across the world, there were people who disagreed with him, along with Bernard. I suppose we should actually just give a, a very brief synopsis of what happened here, because I think we've been talking as if everyone knows what happens here. So in, I think it was 1988, Salman Rushdie pens a book, a fiction book called The Satanic Verses. In early 1989, he, a fatwa is calling for Rushdie's death on the basis that Rushdie had blasphemed against Islam and had insulted Islamic culture. And I I think there was a long list of things. That fatwa led to a long period of Rushdie basically living in hiding or with police protection and repeated attempts to kill Rushdie. I, I think currently there is a bounty on Rushdie's life valued at several million euro. Uh, Iran has been the centre of most of this, not just the initial fatwa which came from the Ayatollah at the time, but also the bounties that have been put in his life. And then in August he went to an event and as he was speaking... Someone rushed on stage, stabbed him multiple times. I think he was stabbed something like three times in the neck. One of his hands was partially severed. He's blind in one eye. It was unclear if he would survive. So that's the context in which 
Durkin is saying, this is something that begged a response and retaliation happened. Like at least, I mean, there have been deaths associated with this and there have been multiple attacks as well. So it's, it's fairly on point. And it kind of sounds like Durkin is saying, you know, if I had, you know, if I had been there, I would have just put the hand on the shoulder and I would have said, Salmon, you know, is this something you really want to do? I don't think you should. Put the old pen down. Or, you know, that bit about the the insertion because the, the, or the, the, the hua was based on a, 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 a a tale, which is a kind of an apocryphal tale, which had been parked for hundreds of years of the culture with the idea that uh, these satanic verses had been inserted into the Quran and illicitly in order to lead people astray. This was, he was playing around with this notion, Rushdie is, I suppose you kind of call him magical realist. I was reading through the synopsis of the satanic verses there. Because I've, I know I've read the Satanic Verses, and I could not remember any of it. Apart from a vague feeling that the book wasn't great and was quite boring. I read Midnight's Children, which I liked a lot, and I'm not a magical realism fan. Not I mean, my idea of torture would be put into a room with nothing to read but Isabella Allende or Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Anyway, but I read that and I liked it. I, I tried the Satanic Verses. I probably finished it because I have a kind of a thing. I almost never don't finish a book, but I did not enjoy it. I do actually have a few memories of a few bits and pieces in it, which you know, have lived with me and therefore there must have been some quality to it. The man can write, I suppose. But it's more than saying, Gary, I would have advised him not to do it. It's just, it was something that begged a response. It was threatening people of selected religions. Well, it wasn't. It was it, religions plural. It was not religions plural. And those people saw a reason for retaliation because they were sensitive about it and retaliation happened. It doesn't sound like a ringing, de a ringing denunciation of a violent response to the publication of a book by a man in defence of artistic freedom and free speech, does it? It's it, and this may not have been his intent because when you listen to the whole thing, the it was rambling, Gary. It wasn't the most coherent piece of oratory ever delivered in the dog. I'll include a screenshot of it in the uh, the podcast page, but it also contains the wonderful quote, Michael: "Fear is not nice." Fear is not. What does that? mean Gary it does have a good line about um he's talking about hate yeah and um he says if we wish to hate by all means we should look in the mirror any morning and hate away that is my answer <laughs> so that's uh, Bird's answer is that in the morning presumably before he's had a shave he looks himself in the mirror and he hates himself that's the answer it's an interesting answer Gary it's a it's a it's a, it's a new one on me so I mean look, look here, here's another quote from this to have the opportunity to discuss the issues this evening is important it gives an opportunity to everyone who has a role to play including us role what does that mean a role to play in literary criticism. I, I, I And then he starts talking about Mary, Mary Giuliani, which made me think he was trying to say something about broken windows theory, the idea that you police the small things in order to send out a signal that larger crimes will not be accepted here. Um, and you basically use it to get rid of the space for crime by making the areas nicer. Uh but I, I read this so many times, trying to figure out what the hell Durkin is actually trying to say, like what his point is. And I think his point is that crime is bad and that racism is bad. But like he talked for, it looks like several minutes and you would struggle to find a point. I, I accept that. Gary, it's very hard to read that chunk there and not come away with the sense of someone saying, well, he asked for it. Well, has he clarified it since? Has he explained or expanded or expounded upon precisely the point that he wanted to make? Because there's a certain amount of genuine curiosity, but what the fuck were you talking about, Bernard? Do you think that Rushdie was asking for it and at the end of the day he's like a drunk in a bar uh, chatting up women in an aggressive fashion and when a boyfriend gives them a box in the mouth well I'm afraid you know maybe you shouldn't give people a box in the mouth but what the hell did you expect to happen? It, that seems to be that's a certain the atmosphere of the piece is wh wh why why was this was this a necessary thing to say I mean even if you even if this is what Bernard thinks and you know I'm using that word loosely why would you why did he feel the need to say it but here's the thing he's talking about safety initiatives so I'll give you the paragraph that comes immediately before it, uh, before the quote you gave Michael I remember going to another city in another country once upon a time where all I could see in the middle of the city was graffiti all over the place 
It was not a great sign or vision of the city, or an ind- indicator for those who came to visit the place. Dublin City is a shop window. Investors come to Dublin. I know many people in this house do not like investors and would prefer if they were elsewhere, but the fact of the matter is we need and have always needed jobs. It is important to ensure that people who come to this city and country can rest assured that they are safe to walk and travel regardless of their religion race and colour, and then it goes, I remember when Salman Rushdie penned his famous The Satanic Verses. Actually, do you know what it actually reminds me of? Now that you read that, I, I actually have worked out what it reminds me of. It reminds me of a Leaving Cert essay being written by a student who's answering a question that he doesn't actually know anything about. So he's decided to put everything in and just sort of wander around from subject to subject, from area to area, in the hope that in the middle of it all, he might get a few points because he might stagger across something which is vaguely relevant to the question. Because there's no there's no connectivity to this at all. Also, isn't it, it's just, to, to do literary criticism, there's a, there's a weird mixture of specific specificity and generality he went to a city he, like he doesn't say when he went or what country he went to or what the city was for some reason he's decided to be silent on that for sense of, of sensitivity i presume it's athens just because athens is that big of a shithole well it could have been new york if you went at a certain time if you're talking about once upon a time he went to new york before giuliani you know in the 70s or 80s when people were saying the the city was over and all that and it was a term state yeah maybe in the 80s but i've been to new york and i've never seen in athens the last time i was there there were two streets michael with a, a small park between them but no fence no trees just some grass really and in that area which was between two main streets which were full by the way of police uh, there were people publicly having sex and injecting heroin in the middle of the city center well, i am I, I i i i am told regularly by people who go to Athens for whatever reason passing through it on the way to somewhere nice but that it is a shithole and the only reason to go there is to say that you went to see the Acropolis you saw the Acropolis and you left but as regards that there's a lot of cities I can tell you I I, I know I've, I don't notice it when I'm in Italy but I know that if I'm with somebody who's never been there before and you're in Milan or certainly somewhere like Rome or Naples you've got these wonderful 18th and 19th century palazzos and they're all covered in graffiti and it's not like Banksy or it's not artistic even though frankly artistic graffiti to me is a little bit of an oxymoron it's not it's just scrawls and black spray paint and just horribly ugly and they get really shocked by it and when I lived in Milan and Milan is a well-run city relatively speaking and I'd say a reasonably tidy city but I found shock I found it shocking that I would go around the corner to the dog park near me and you would see guys uh, shooting up um, the central stations incredible plastic fashion monument in the middle of the city and the piazza in front of it but that was where all the heroin addicts went and you went about your business to and from to get the metro get a train you were constantly where the under there's this crunch 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 because a lot of the time you're walking over syringes and things so speaking of uh banksy did you see that a number of his uh pieces have gone up in ukraine because the people there have clearly not suffered enough they'll be stolen too i'm sure if the russians ever get back in there but anyway it's an odd thing but i talk about the specificity he, he then having not said what city then he mentioned specifically Salman Rushdie in Satanic Verses, rather than saying, you know, sometimes people write and they're le- they're not aware of what they're, the, the, the sensitivities of the people they write. But no, he actually goes for Salman Rushdie, who is kind of the icon of what it means to be guardian or protected uh, or, or, or free speech in the Western world. He has become an icon of liberal Western democracy because he was, he was living in London at the time and the Tory government immediately came in and uh, he wasn't and he wasn't a friend of the Tories and he has talked about this he said he, how grateful he was he was absolutely no doubt that he would be protected as fully and as completely as they could protect him as long as it was necessary because on principle as uh, as, a, as an author as an artist uh, he had the right to express himself freely so he is this totemic figure the huge amount of hoo-ha and bruhaha that happened around the time was considered to be a demonstration of the difference of two very different ways of looking at the world we had a certain set of values and this was us asserting our values that we still had these values until the desire to defend them and that maybe is an idea which is current again today so he's this figure he mentions it specifically but then he goes on and says rather than say it out loud it was threatening to people of selected religions he doesn't he won't come out and say what religion because there's only one there were no buddhists in the streets gary the amish 
of Pennsylvania were not out there marching with placard at, or putting signs in the back of their horse and buggies. The Pope did not issue the fatwa, but for some reason he decides to be very vague about that point. Yes, no, that was that was a um, I was going to say carefully calibrated point of vagueness, but nothing about this is carefully calibrated at all. Did you see his description of how the uh, Rwandan genocide happened? What? So he says. Incidentally, I was driving home last night when I heard somebody who rang into a radio program to say he or she had a right to hate. What an appalling expression. Nobody has a right to hate or should ever hate. There is no reason for it. I recall the war in Rwanda where a gentleman seized a radio station and poured out hatred for two or three years until it eventually boiled over into outright violence and 500,000 people were beheaded as a result. It's all very fine to identify someone afterwards and say it was unfortunate, but that happened to people. It was unfortunate. The Rwandan, the Rwandan genocide, genocide was an unfortunate, unfortunate affair. And not to be picky, but I think it was rather more than 500,000 people. <laughs> Estimates actually kind of go from like 450, 500 to, and then they go up. Part of what he's saying is actually correct. There was a, a radio station called RTLM, which um, it was a Hutu um, radio station. It's argued RTLM was was a key part of of amplifying the the division that eventually led to the genocide. It was. It was um, from what I've read about it, and I, I I've had the the opportunity on a couple of occasions to talk to people who were in Rwanda directly after the the genocide and were involved in investigating. So what they said to me that yes, it definitely was. It wasn't just that they amplified the hatred and they did, but they did, but also it was about the organisation and direction that when it came to it. But I think Gary, there was also other stuff happening on the ground. It wasn't just it wasn't that there was just this single beacon broadcasting and there was nothing else happening in in Rwandan society and there were nobody else there was nobody else doing or saying anything other than that but it's I, I thought by the way that Bernard had said it was all that if you wanted to hate you it was okay you should go ahead and hate the person that looked at you in the mirror in the morning sorry hold on is is this something to do with opposition to the hate speech bill is that it Michael, he is, he's talking on Dublin City safety initiatives, on community safety. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's it. Maybe community safety is going to be promoted by the introduction of the hate speech bill. Because people like you and Gerard Casey, who are going around demanding a right to hate, are actually going to take over a radio station and cause a genocide. I was actually kind of amazed that he didn't uh, use the radio station's nickname. Do you know what it was? No, go on. A radio machete. Oh, God. Now, I will say this. That was a nickname given to it largely by academics. Um, And there's a massive debate about the actual impact of that radio station. Frankly, I think it's it's fairly overblown. It wasn't like there weren't problems before. You just we say Machete, I remember the chilling detail in one of the reporter I might have even been an Irish reporter who was in uh Kigali or in or, or the environs of Kigali just before the the massacre started. And he he has this description that at, at times there was a moment where there was this that he this noise that was in the air when he realised post factum that it was what it was it was the whine of the machetes being sharpened on the stone. The weird thing about the Rwandan genocide is it was a very very low tech genocide compared to most of what we see. Well, genocide is obviously pretty horrible, but yes, hands on. The other thing about it, Michael, though, is have you ever seen the estimates of how, what percentage of the um, the Tutsi were actually killed? They killed, the estimates are over 80% of the entire Tutsi population, which is bizarre considering that far more high-tech genocides have struggled to hit those kind of numbers. Oh, it was absolutely. Um, when you, I mean, if anybody has, there are a number of accounts out there, it is worth reading I mean, if you want to be horrified by the capacity of human beings to do evil but it was it was just relentless and organized and it was methodical and quite calm i mean that's the thing that I, I, there may have been things that i don't remember but one of the things i remember when i, I reading about it was the sense of how calmly orderly and methodical these people were considering as you say this was a very low-tech mass killing this was hands-on this wasn't industrialized this wasn't distance this was look people in the eye see them and then oh horrible horrible thing but what the hell this 
I mean, it just seems like a bit of a leap, Gary, does it not, to go from the Rwandan genocide to Dublin safety? It's a bizarre, th- listen, the whole thing is bizarre, but for, from my perspective, the thing that I find most curious and disturbing is what, on the face of it, and maybe it's not what the man meant because it's not easy to really parse what the man did mean fully, is the sense that there was some kind of a sense that the man, that Salman Rushdie was asking for it, and that people engage in that kind of behaviour. Is he saying that you we have to basically censor ourselves if what we're going to say is going to hurt the sensitivities of other people? I think the underlying argument is a very common one amongst people who are just not supportive of free speech. It's the idea that, yeah, you're free to say what you want, but there will be consequences. And it's usually said in a sort of tone which indicates that they are happy that there's consequences, although perhaps not in this case. But Michael, before we move on, I would just make this point. When you read through what other TDs were talking about this, like they're talking about the fire brigade, they're talking about boxing clubs, they're talking about, you know, antisocial behaviour, about bus routes. <laughs> it's just like, now let me tell you that this author had it coming and also the Rwandan genocide. Hell of a thing. You've said something there, Gary, which has reminded me of something we've been talking about similar areas before. I, 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 something I want a point I want to make. It has become a truism about, say, free speech about cancel culture. I remember uh, we were talking about Graham Norton and saying, you know, and he was he's not the only one to say it, and people have said it far more stridently and, and uh, than him. Well, you know what? You can say what you like. But you have to expect, you have to accept there will be consequences of what you say. And you know what? It struck me that we have kind of acquiesced to that idea. But I think we need to unpack that idea a little bit, at least. What they're saying is that free speech, that saying something which is wrong, will have consequences for you. And that's actually a really rather weird idea when you think about it. If somebody says something, and they're not saying it in the word, like the original Dean Williams would say, you're not saying it with hate in your heart. You're not saying it to stir up hatred against people. You're not looking to incite violence. But you're saying something which in good faith you believe to be true. But you, you're wrong in some maybe provable sense, or, but are in the opinion of the people you're wrong. That being saying something and being wrong should have consequences. You're not stri- when you actually think of, stand back and think about it, is that not a really weird and rather dangerous idea? Okay. Unless you can say something which you are absolutely sure and certain will be both right and will be accepted by the rest of the people around you as being right, that bad things will happen to you, that people will come and attack you, that, you're, that you might lose your job or that you will become socially a pariah because you said something that was wrong. That's not what, th- th- that's not free speech anymore. That, the, the, the idea that free speech is simply the right to be able to say something will be put in prison is free speech. That's not free speech. point I would make here is that Durkin is not just making an argument that your actions will have consequences. Durkin is making an argument that your actions will have consequences, including you being stabbed multiple times and left for dead. Yes. So it's not like, oh, you may lose some friends or you may lose your job. People have died over this. There's, there's a bounty of millions of euro for someone... To be killed. And Bernard is just, well, you know, you said something about something they were sensitive about, and, uh, you know, it begged a response. And I, and I accept that. I mean, it, it, he is very much, uh, you know, if you're talking about an argument, an argument ad absurd, ad absurdum, he's got to the absurdum bit. What I'm saying, Gary, is that if we t- even take it down, we shouldn't be in a position where we're afraid of losing friends because we say something that's wrong. I mean, obviously, it's as long as a piece of string and there's a hierarchy of things. I mean, if you come out and say things which are plainly and obviously hateful, if, for example, you're to go around quoting chunks of das- of uh, of uh, Mein Kampf and making th- and making moral judgments on the basis of that, then I yeah I could see that you know, you you could have friends who would perfectly reasonably say, well, you know, I don't want to be friends anymore. But the idea that people speaking in good faith and not making ridiculously horrible outlandish state should be saying, oh, I'm not sure if I want to say that because, you know, okay, I have free speech, but that will have consequences. I think that idea in itself is a really suspect one. But it, we, it has become embedded. It's just become part of the concept. Oh, well, you know, it's all very well. You, free, you have free speech. Nobody's stopping you saying it. <laughs> Excuse me. But 
you have to you have to accept there will be consequences. I'm not sure we should accept because I don't know how knowledge how knowledge goes forward or progresses if people are in a position where they're constantly censoring themselves on the basis that if they get something wrong, that well, I mean, there are hierarchies of wrongness. There are we have to be in a position to make qualitative judgments to say, well, yeah, he's wrong. Okay, it's this is not a terrible thing. He's not a terrible person, but there doesn't seem to be. A, uh, that much room in this paradigm for that kind of nuance. Now, you laugh at me. I know you laugh when I say nuance. But a little bit of nuance wouldn't be a bad thing occasionally. No, I mean, I, I was I was having this discussion with Michael off air and we were talking about stuff. And Michael said, and I was just shocked at the lack of nuance in the debate. And all I could say is, Mike, when, what was the last debate? Legitimately, what was the last debate in Irish politics you saw or culture in which nuance existed. Yes, we are, as the cliche has it, rather polarised. Speaking of people quoting Mein Kampf, I suppose we will go now to talk about Justin Barrett and the National Party. So for those who haven't seen this, the National Party had their Erdfesh recently. A group of our very left-wing friends decided that they would crash this party. And there's photos showing people holding things like hammers and fire extinguishers as they go to crash this party. Now, someone has been arrested in connection with this and has received a whole host of charges, Michael. We won't talk about certain aspects of this, but suffice it to say, it appears that a busload of people pulled up to the Ardfesh and attacked the National Party Ardfesh. Yeah, there were rep- there was reports about hammers. I saw reports, whether they were right or they're wrong, that some, some individuals may have had blade weapons, knives, perhaps. I don't know if I was not there. I don't know if this is true, but it was that it was reported so to be. So I I haven't seen any photos of blades. It's definitely a photo of someone holding a hammer uh, going towards the National Party and holding a fire extinguisher as well. It's, you know, a utility item, but also a very heavy thing made of metal. We started looking into this in Gript to try and figure out what happened because we have the photos. We know someone has been picked up by the police and we know someone is in hospital. Um... I think the tendons of their hand, I think, were severed partially. Uh, But it's not clear if that was some sort of bladed weapon or if a window was smashed and it was cut open. But anyway, the injuries were were, were on the National Party side anyway. And it looks like what happened is they they attacked the National Party Ardfesh. Although there is there the question of what happens between the photos we have and... You know, it was there provocation, anything like that. We won't go into that because that's, as I said, part of this is being litigated. The only thing I would say is that the reporting of it, Gary, was quite funny. The, the word that was used in several headlines that I saw was, there was an altercation. Now, an altercation, an altercation to me, that is, is redolent of that phrase used when there's a punch-up in a football game in a GA, when they say, oh, it was a bit of handbags. Altercation. I, 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 it, it was very, very played down. The reporting on it focused on the National Party. Uh, multiple pieces of reporting just said that they were far right. Uh, there were things of that nature. And it was very, very, I think, particular. I think there was, a, shall we say, a presentation style chosen. But it was, I would say, the most positive press, and well, at least the most sympathetic press, the National Party has ever had in its history. And they were able to talk about how their Ardfesh went ahead, and there were injuries, but they were going to, you know, uh, continue doing what they would do. And then, Michael, yeah. and then, yeah. Justin Barrett, the head of the National Party, decides he's going to go on Telegram, and he's going to, in a public Telegram, which everyone has access to, send a message which is a word-for-word quotation from Mein Kampf. And this is... This is a public group on Telegram. I mean, as Hitler quotes, go, Michael. It wasn't the most out there. It was about the um, how young men are, are basically the future. But you're, you're, you're the leader of a political party. You're having sympathetic press. Amongst the press who openly despise you because they think you're not very far from neo-Nazis. And you decide, I'm going to start quoting and tweeting out Mein Kampf. This then creates a situation where people start going to grip. And grip had carried... Uh, part of Justin Barrett's explanation of what had happened. And people start complaining to us about this. I received a couple of messages saying that John was a Nazi sympathiser, which were deeply amusing. But internally, the stance we had taken, and this is what John has said, is that the National Party, regardless of what you think of it, is a registered political party in Ireland. Yes. You do not get to attack it with hammers. 
It is not a prescribed organisation. And if you do attack them with hammers, yes, we will have to cover it and we will have to let them say what happened because they're a political party that you've just attacked with hammers. Yeah. That, to me, seems fairly basic. And then people started going, are you, so are you saying we shouldn't hit Nazis with hammers? Right? Yes. I'm saying you shouldn't go to a political party meeting and beat people with hammers. And that might be difficult to accept for a couple of people, but I think it's the right route. And that's only partially based on the people who seem most annoyed with us for saying you shouldn't beat Nazis with hammers. And not the sort of people I would think have a very fine-tuned ability to limit themselves as to who they hit with hammers. That's fine, but I would respond like this to you. The Ardèche was seen as an expression of freedom of speech, but I saw it as something else. I saw it as something (laughs) which begged a response. You know, you could say that. You could say that people saw a reason for retaliation because they were sensitive about what was going on in the Ardèche, and that retaliation happened. One of the things, actually, I will say this, on this idea of, you know, punch Nazis or or now hit Nazis with weapons is that it tends people then tend to make comments about the history of Germany where it becomes very apparent they have no fucking idea what they're talking about or what Germany was like in that period so they're like oh well you know if we had taken this response we wouldn't have had the original Nazi party and you're like people had that response you don't think they were running street battles you don't think there were people going in with hammers to Nazi meetings in in Germany in, in the Weimar in fact, one of one of the Nazis, one of the Nazi things the Nazis said they would do is stop the chaos on the streets that was being caused largely by the anarchists. Also, you have the fact that the the Antifa at the time, when presented with the literal Nazi party, looked at the Social Democrats and were like, "They're the real problem." And I, I should probably ex- ex- explain that why they thought that because. Antifa originally, because they came from the the Communist Party, took the Stalinist definition of uh, fascism, where fascism is really just anything that stops the development towards a communist society. So by that justification, yes, the Social Democrats were absolutely fascists as well. So they should, you know, they should be beaten first. And they had a stronger electoral base. So that's probably why they focused on them. But uh, just saying that the history of the, you know, we should be able to use political violence on Nazis has not worked out well. You think that it's a quote? I'm just wondering if Justin has actually read Mein Kampf because I'm trying to phrase this very carefully. Have you have you read Mein Kampf, Gary? Years ago, at this stage, occasionally I'll get the ear. I'll be like, oh, I should reread it because it's a pivotal book in political thought, but it's not a good book. You see, that's what I'm going to say. In, in in a very, very specific and qualified fashion, I would almost admire him more if I thought that he'd actually started at the first page and got all the way to the last page. Because there was a period in my life where I, I got made myself on a list of books that I wanted to read because they were books that were out there that seemed to be important. People tell, told me were important. Start, things like you, Thomas More's Utopia, Prince's Machiavelli, uh, Das Kapital, um, which I never got round to until college. But one of them was uh, Mein Kampf, which I happened to be, and I only read it really because, well, it was on my list, but also because uh, I knew somebody who happened to have a copy of it, who was a professional historian, I should say, who was, who was actually interested in the conspiracy theory of history and had written scholarly stuff about conspiracy theory of history in the 20th century, and that was Nazi's work. I couldn't. I couldn't get close to finishing it. It was so boring and so badly written and so disorganized. In my humble opinion, that and it's not small either. Getting to the that was uh, clearly written by a man who had a, a lot of free time in prison. A free time, mad as a badger. There is a point where you're 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 reading through it and you're like, you're just waiting for the next bout of insanity. Because it's it, like it's peaks and troughs. Yeah, but. yeah, it is. It is, in fairness. It's not all howl at the moon. It's Sometimes it's just bark at the moon. But, but here's, the, here's the question, Gary. You've been at meetings, as I have, with members of more established traditional political parties uh, where they're media people that have been talking about something. And you've sat there, I'm sure, if I have thought, that's, that's not a good idea. Really, lads. You might think that You'll get a good headline today, but when people start to think about it, like the day after tomorrow, or two days, that's just going to be a shit show. 
that's no. If you think this is going, no, this this is not going to run. And and these we're not talking about weird or wonderful ideas. Just just bad ideas. Just from the political point of view, you're in a party in a country where extreme right wing politics has had incredibly little success at a time where we have gone from being an incredibly homogeneous country, ethnically, racially, religiously, whatever, to having the largest non-native born population in the OECD. And we have seen in the middle of this, with this massive change in the the, the nature of the diversity of the population, we've had a massive financial crisis and a crash and We've had an economic, the economy fall apart. We've had a skyrocketing levels of employment after experiencing full employment for 15 years. And yet, in the context, the far right just can't get going at all. You get a little bit, like you say, you get the closest that they've ever had to some kind of vaguely, I mean, it's not really positive news, but, you know, they're in the news and people are talking about them. And bad people have come with hammers to attack. And the choice you make politically is to quote Mein Kampf. You don't get that, Gary. I'd like you to explain to me why that was a good idea. I don't know, man. But it does suggest, like, if you are people who are legitimately concerned about the National Party, I would point to this as a sign that you don't really have to be worried about them. Because the level of putting aside any sort of question of where, like, where Justin Barrett's political philosophy actually is... The sort of person who would do this is incapable of success, just on a purely tactical level. I see it's a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty decent example of where you could say that somebody has snatched defeat from the very jaws of victory. Did anybody, by the way, other than you, did anybody else notice this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the left-wing groups notice. Well, the left-wing no- groups pay fairly close attention to the National Party yeah. anyway, but they were unhappy about how the assault or the, the incident went, Michael. Yeah. So they were concerned that they had actually given positive press to the National Party, given them some bit more of a platform, and the National Party could come out and be legitimately, uh, or well, have some legitimate statement on something. So they were delighted when they found this. I remember years and years ago reading a, a history about anti-Catholicism in Scotland uh, in the post-Reformation period. I remember there was a story in it, which I don't know, may have, may even have been true. It's too good a story almost to be true. But it said that in Edinburgh at one stage, at the, this was obviously a, a period well after the Reformation, but before there had been the migrations from Ireland, from the north of Ireland into Scotland, say for the potato pickers or later on for to work in the Industrial Revolution. So, and Edinburgh would have been a small city. There was a period where the, the Catholic population of Edinburgh had declined to, I think, 12 people. But there were a lot of anti-Catholic organisations in Edinburgh. And it, it strikes me, it's a little bit like Ireland today with the far right. We have all these extremist leftist groups, many of them indeed in the, in the doll, And we have the papers constantly talking about the threat of the rise of the right and the right of the far right and the far right. And it, it, it's a little bit like you're, you're saying they follow they follow them carefully. There was one group which decided that they were going to actually keep all of the Catholics in Edinburgh under observation. But there were 13 people in the group, which worked out fine. Which that meant that somebody always got a night off because there were more people in the group than there were Catholics that they had to follow. And it's a little bit like that here, isn't it? That there, there isn't quite enough far right in Ireland to meet the demands of the market. We have these groups and we want to talk about them and examine them in all, all, constantly, but just isn't really enough of them to go around. So currently the, the fallout of this is that people are going off at John McGurk about um, saying that you shouldn't beat your political opponents with hammers. And there's just a lot of but Nazis and John very kindly going. But no. Even the people you think is na- are Nazis or fascists, you still can't beat them with hammers. And those people then are talking about the paradox of tolerance, Michael. You know, if you tolerate intolerance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then society will be... I've always thought it was a very bizarre argument for these people to make, given that they are arguing that they should be allowed to use physical force against their political opponents. Which, if we're going to be intolerant of certain things in order to avoid that becoming a commonly accepted societal norm, I would have thought being intolerant to those who want to use political violence 
is actually a far more legitimate line to stand on. Yeah, but you're the guy that wouldn't have shot Hitler if you'd seen him in Munich at a cafe in 1923. Also, really, it seems to me here, Gary, we're, what we're, we're dealing with is your old distinction between the ethical man and the moral man. These are people who are deeply moral. And what you're saying to them is that we have these ethics and these ethics in our in our political system say that it's not acceptable to go around hitting people with hammers because they have a different political belief to you. And they're going, ah, oh, that's but they're bad people and we are good people. They're very bad and we are very good. So we shall hit them with hammers. And enough with your ethics. Enough with this nonsense. This tolerance that you talk about. Michael, I accept that they are very sure that they are good people who are capable of making no mistake when determining which of their political opponents should be physically assaulted. I'm just saying I don't trust these people because historically that's ended badly for all involved. You think there's a risk that sometimes, rarely, but sometimes historically, it has escalated and they've ended up hitting more people with hammers than was perhaps absolutely necessary. Michael, also, we've been looking into, because we have photographs of the people who were there, looking into who some of these people are. And let me tell you, Michael, if there was a group that I was going to designate with the ability to uh, determine who should be basically, you know, free for you to do anything you want to them, this is not the brain trust I would pick. <laughs> this, this is... <laughs> Sorry, but before we go, I just there's one question which I'm sure all the listeners want to know is, so John McGurk, so he's a Nazi, is he? So what, what I really want to know is, can we hit John McGurk with hammers? That's really what I want to know. Do you want the ethical or moral answer? Moral answer. A moral, I, I think, yes, absolutely, you can make that argument. Now, if they hit John McGurk with hammers hard enough, does that mean you get a promotion? I suppose it depends whether or not I'm the man who swung the hammer. No, no, no. Other people swing the hammers. You know, the, the moral people. Nobody will ever accuse you of being moral, Gary. Don't worry. No, the moral people come along and hit John with a hammer because he's a Nazi. But they don't hit you with a hammer. Although, then again, they might hit you with a hammer because you're probably a Nazi. Because if you're not a Nazi, you're Nazi adjacent. I'm I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think we've established how the editorial uh, or how the editorship of Gript will be passed down the line. It might go to the firstborn. <laughs> and then I'd have to kill his children as well. And now we're getting very old school. An order of succession. Maybe it's his dog. He has a dog, a spaniel, I believe. Yeah, it's possible. I would like to say for the purposes of clarity, I am not a Nazi. Michael is much worse. Nazis at least believed in something. You're a very kind. <laughs> anyway, you wanted to say something else about something else. So to close with, I wanted to talk on Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson gets invited to over, to Singapore. He goes to an event that uh, Mr. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, the wonderful billionaire who's very involved in health initiatives all over the world, usually to the detriment of you know people, invites him over to this thing called the New Economy Forum in Singapore. Johnson gets up, and Michael. He describes China as a coercive, the Guardian says, to about 500 Asian business people, investors and diplomats. So all people who would have known that that was true. Deeply aware of that being true. And then, but unfortunately, everyone the Guardian quotes from is deeply unhappy with Johnson having said this and how he should know better than this, Michael. And then Michael Bloomberg takes the stage and says that uh, Boris Johnson... Though they, what he said are his thoughts and his thoughts alone, and says to those of you who are upset and concerned by what the speaker said, you have my apologies. Now again, Michael Boris Johnson is absolutely right, but I thought the Guardian's headline on this was very interesting. Yeah, Bloomberg forced Bloomberg forced to apologise after Boris Johnson's speech criticising China. I thought the forced is interesting. It has the kind of a taste of. Boris says something madly Boris-like and embarrassing and stupid and wrong, and poor Mr. Bloomberg has to come out and shamefacedly apologise for Boris saying terrible, stupid thing. Which is absolutely pretty, because the Guardian, God love it, is at this stage, the spectacles are so dark and so deep on them when it comes to Boris Johnson, that they can't just say, well, actually, Boris said something which was true, and Michael Bloomberg, in a shameful way, came out and apologised for him telling the truth. Because basically, Boris said the quiet thing out loud, and everybody got horribly embarrassed by it. 
I think the Bloomberg's apology, not like the full apology, is very cutting towards Johnson. Because he says his apology is actually quite long. I'll link the Guardian so that you can see the full thing. He's saying to people, he apologizes to people who might have been upset. And he says, and if you weren't upset, perhaps you've enjoyed Boris Johnson. He's very controversial, but also very entertaining. He was trying to be amusing rather than informative and serious. And I think we need to give him a little bit of credit for that. Basically, Bloomberg going, Johnson is a monkey. Johnson's saying that China is a coercive autocracy. Is a joke. I, no, if it is a joke, it's, it's a, I, I'm, I don't find it funny, Gary. And I have a good sense of humor and I'm very easily pleased. I, I'm not getting a joke there. And I suspect if I could be a little bit political, the Uyghurs aren't getting the joke either. And not, uh, as, as comes to, uh, course of autocracies. Anybody who has a, anybody with a bad cold at the moment in China is not getting the joke either. Michael, I'm sure the Uyghurs are getting the joke. You shackle someone to the ground and electroshock them for long enough, they're going to get any joke you tell them they get. Well, yeah, unless you've taken their liver out of them when they're still alive. Well, that's their fault for living such healthy lives. You are quite correct. I am sorry. I stand abashed. I do enjoy that China is a country in which a legitimate safety strategy is alcoholism. (laughs) Can't take your liver if you've tanked it. Don't go near me. I'm on half a bottle of vodka a day. And I never walk anywhere and I'm very overweight. You, I'm no use to you. A safety strategy. <laughs> if you're a Chinese peasant and you know you're going to prison, like let's say you remember the Feilong Kong. Yeah. You want to start putting on the weight, you want to start smoking, you want to start just knocking the drink back. Because you want to enter that prison as unharvestable as possible. If anybody says to you, are you a member of Feilong Kong? Yes, but I haven't eaten a vegetable in five years. So I'm no good. The decision of the Chinese state to harvest the organs of the Feilong Gong because their lifestyle makes them actually quite healthy and therefore quite valuable is, Michael, I think one of the greatest utilitarian decisions of this century. You know, it, it, it shows a certain clear-eyed attitude, an unsentimental way of looking at maximizing the utility that is. If you were Jeremy Bentham, probably admirable. I'd also say there's probably a pretty decent argument against utilitarianism as a, as a philosophy. Peter Singer was once asked, if you are a surgeon in a hospital and you have a patient come to you and you know that you have four other patients in that hospital who are going to die without an organ transplant and that this chap is very healthy and an organ donor, morally, do you have an imperative to kill that man so that his organs can be given to the others and therefore save four lives? And Singer's response was, Yes, but only if you can do so in absolute confidence that the fact you've done so will never be known. Because if it becomes known, Michael, it would damage the faith in the public health sector. You know, the thing about Peter Singer is, Peter Singer has taken a position, he's got on a train, and he has followed the train all the way down the tracks. He's allowed the train to go in a straight line, and that is, in its own way, quite admirable. He doesn't try and get to a point where he says, oh, shit, I kind of have to pretend that that's not where the train is going because people will be shocked and horrified. Like, Peter Singer does have, you know the old, the trolley, the thought experiment with the trolley, the trolley car experiment, where you've got the tram is going and there are people on the track and if you kill some brother. Peter Singer has no problem with that. Peter Singer thinks, why is that a question? The answer is obvious. Peter Singer, I I think you're right. I I, I do admire his ability to get to what other people would consider an absolutely abhorrent conclusion and just say, if that's where we are, that's where we are. He reminds me, there was a quote applied to Enoch Powell, that uh, Powell was a man whose reason had led him to madness. (laughs) And I always think it's very appropriate for Singer as well. Everything he says, he can back up. And each individual step probably felt perfectly fine and rational. But when you look at where you start and you look at where you end, it's very, very clear something's gone wrong. He's absolutely consistent. He's completely consistent and he's completely coherent and utterly honest. And he says, well, if I'm right about this stuff, and I think I am, and that means that we get here, well, then that's just where we should be. And there's no point in me just being pettifogging and 
quibbling about it and saying, well, I'd like to be somewhere else. Well, I'd like to be maybe somewhere else, but that's not where I am. So there's, there's a refreshing honesty to that. On the other hand, I would be very frightened if Peter Singer was made king of the world tomorrow because I think that would be a worrying thing. But at the moment, he's just professor of philosophy. And where is he professor of philosophy now? He was Monash for years. He was in Monash. But I think he's in Harvard or Yale nowadays. Big guy. And he's read Hegel, which you have to say, in fairness, that's admirable, because, Jesus, that's a penance in itself. There you go. Boris, in trouble for going around telling the truth. Yes, I, I just... I kind of wanted to mention the Boris thing, one, because he was an abysmal prime minister, but... So we eventually got around to saying something good about him. But also because I thought it tied nicely together. Like the Durkin thing, the National Party thing, and the Johnson thing. Yeah. All show different, shall we say, pushbacks to speech. All improper in different ways. I'm sure there is a, an Orwell quote. What is the quote? There will, a time will come where telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Well, we are that time. Do you know what? We probably always were that time. But now it is explicit. Scrubbenfair had an interesting point on ethics, which because we were talking about um, Peter Singer, and this kind of reminds me of it, of his question of who's actually the good man here. You, are you familiar with his um, his discussion of Titus and Caius, or Caius? It was Caius would be, or Keys, they'd say, but Caius. No, I'm not. So he says, take these two men. Each of these two men have chased after a woman. And that woman has betrayed them and gone off with another man. And both of these people have decided that they're going to kill the other man. And both of them come back and say that they haven't been able to to go through with it. And Titus couldn't go through with it because Titus got there and made a intellectual philosophical argument about why what he was doing was improper and so didn't go through with it. And Chaos, when he went there, was overcome with sadness uh, about what he was about to do and a sense of pity that he was going to take a man's life over something so temporal. And the question here is, and explicitly Scopenhauer's question is, which of these is the better man? Which of these is good? Is it the person who didn't do it because intellectually they thought it was wrong, but emotionally had no connection to the act? Or the person who could not give a grounded explanation intellectually of what happened, but simply felt that this was something that shouldn't be done. I'm not asking you to debate that, although if our listeners have any thoughts on that, please do send it in. I'll see if I can uh, dig up uh, the full thing of it and I'll include it in a quote below. We've gone from, Michael, you you telling people to read reports to me sending people quotes of Scopenhauer and asking them to send back their responses. Yeah, the... the the value of pessimism. Uh, the will to power. That's the one to read. The will to power. Um, it reminds me of my old professor, Professor Matthew O'Donnell, who used to ask, he was a question he used to present to us about the nature of, it was, I suppose, the nature of, of, of goodness as opposed, or expertise or something. I don't know. Which was, if you have a choice, you're going to play poker and you can choose either to play poker with five moral philosophers from university, fine universities who were experts in moral philosophy but had never been taught by their mother that it was wrong to cheat at cards. Or you could pay with five down-and-outs who had no training in moral philosophy and were basically illiterate, but however had been taught by their mother that it was wrong to cheat at cards. Which group would you choose to play cards with? I think it's something similar. It's a similar kind of idea. Anyway, um, we have reached that time, I suppose, Gary, when it's time to release the listeners back into the wild. And we shall be back on Sunday coming, all being well. I hope you spend your next week thinking about what it is to be good. <laughs> yeah, they will. Goodbye. All the best. <laughs>